0: In Christ alone we stand, and that is our theme as we come to this book of Colossians, where Paul has been and will continue to be exalting Christ in front of our minds and hearts tonight. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians. We're beginning chapter 2 tonight, the first verses of chapter 2. If you have been uh, with us in the evening services of late. You would know that we've worked our way through Colossians chapter 1 where Paul first uh, addressed the Colossians and thanked God for the work of the gospel in their lives and prayed uh, that the Lord would continue to give them progress in their faith. Then he turned his attention to Christ and exalted the sufficiency and the glory of Christ who came in the image of God as the head of his church to bring salvation for his people. And then Paul turned to talk of his own ministry. And last week at the end of chapter 1, we looked at uh, his comments declaring the central mission of his ministry, which was to proclaim Christ the hope of glory. And so we've worked our way through these topics in chapter 1. But as he's addressed each of these, a question might still be in your minds, and that might be, well, what is Paul's main purpose in writing this book of Colossians? He's addressed these different topics. What's he driving at? What's his main goal here? And as we head into chapter 2, Paul offers the clearest statement yet of his purpose for writing this letter to the Colossians and how he hopes to accomplish that purpose. And so, I'd invite you to follow with me. We're going to just read five verses tonight, at the beginning of Colossians chapter 2, but listen as we read the Word of God together tonight. Beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you with spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word, for revealing yourself to us, revealing your will to us, revealing Christ to us in your word. And we pray that you would use it in our hearts and our lives for your sake tonight. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Paul starts out by talking about struggle and effort. You know, anytime you see someone pouring significant struggle or effort into something, you have a natural question of why. Why are they doing that? Why are they putting so much effort into this? What's motivating them? What are they trying to accomplish? I think my my neighbor had that question when he looked over a while back and saw me struggling, straining, dripping sweat in my front yard and apparently frustrated, and came over and said, Chris, what are you doing? What's causing all this sweat and this effort? Well, I was trying to rip out a stump from a bush that I had cut down, and the stump was winning. I wasn't having any, any uh, success with it, but my neighbor saw the effort, and the question was, Well, what's causing that? What are you doing? We, we might see the same if I go to the, to the gym, and uh, I can tell the difference right away between the guy who's just there working out after work to, to release some stress and the athlete who has a particular goal that they are seeking to accomplish and the effort and intensity with which they are working out. You can tell them apart immediately by the consistency and intensity of their effort. Well, the same question arose in my mind and I think in our minds when we turn to Colossians chapter 2 and we read Paul's words because he begins by saying how great a struggle he has for the believers of Colossae and those in Laodicea and for all those he's not met face to face. And we ask, Why? Paul, why this struggle? What are you striving for? And I think we can summarize the main point of Paul's efforts this way. Paul exerts all his energy toward one great goal, and that is that God's people might stand firm in their faith, mature in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to walk through the passage with you so we can see this goal, that God's people might stand firm in their faith and mature in Christ. And as we do so, I want us to see Paul's effort, I want to see Paul's aim, and I want us to see Paul's ultimate desire, his effort, his aim, his ultimate desire. Let's start by looking at Paul's effort, which he describes there in verse 1. Now, as you're looking at verse 1, Go backwards one more verse, if you would, for just a minute, to chapter 1, verse 29. Because at the end of last week's passage, Paul was talking about energy struggle and toil then. He said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And then he adds, and I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. These two verses fit together. And what you see is that in two verses, Paul has used five different words to emphasize the struggle, or toil, or energy, or power, or how great a struggle that is part of this strenuous effort that characterizes his ministry. And I would suggest to you that this is not passing hyperbole. I have Uh, a number of middle schoolers and high schoolers in my house right now, and I might come to them at the end of the day, and they might have been working on a school assignment for an hour, and they would say, this was so hard I put so much effort and I think I talked to you at you know 45 minutes ago and you were just fine. That's hyper hyper hyperbolic there to express uh, how hard this was. That's not what Paul's doing here. This is not hyperbole. No, this is a five times emphasized labor on behalf of God's people. Now I want us to realize the word for struggle that Paul uses here, the Greek word agon you can hear the word agony in it, can you? We get our English word agony from this word for struggle. And this Greek word for struggle was often used for the striving of a boxer in the ring in the middle of his match. It was also used for a soldier in combat. This striving, struggling, it's a difficult, fully engaged, poured forth energy toward a goal. This week, I listened to a podcast interview with a historian who spent uh, the last uh, months interviewing and reading diaries from men in the 11th Airborne Division. The 11th Airborne fought during World War II in the Pacific Theater. They were particularly deployed in 1944 for that final year of island-to-island combat Against the the desperation of the Japanese forces, and he described in this interview and those that he had uh, talked with the fight for the island of Leyte. It's one of the the islands, and the 11th uh, Airborne was particularly charged with blocking a series of jungle trails. The Japanese are using these trails to come and have uh, um, uh, conduct raids and attacks on the U.S. troops. Now, the soldiers, they didn't have maps of these trails. They knew they were being used. They had to go and find them. And these uh, trails were coming down mountains at some places so steep that one soldier in his diary described standing straight up on the trail and being able to reach forward and touch the path with his hand. That's how steep the incline was. And not only were they trying to find these these paths and these these upward inclines, but during this time they were drenched with torrential rains. This is not surprising in the Pacific Theater. But they described how the mud was ankle or sometimes halfway up their shins deep as they were trying to get to these trails to blockade them. And not only not only that, if the conditions weren't hard enough a large percentage of the soldiers contracted fever and were sick and weak as they were new to this area of the world. And yet, in the face of fever and sickness and torrential rains and inclines steeper than I can imagine and no map, the 11th Airborne pressed ahead and gave every ounce of their strength to climb and block these paths in order to protect and to save the lives of their troops." down the mountain. So this is agon. This is the struggle or the striving that Paul is picturing for us here when he talks about pouring forth his effort on behalf of the Colossians. It is an engaged, intentional, committed effort of prayer, teaching, warning, toling, toiling with all the energy that God gives him for the sake of Christ's people. See, so that's the effort. That Paul talks here. And, and it makes me, makes me ask myself when I think about this. And by the way, we'll get to it in chapter four, but uh, Paul will use the same word of struggle in chapter four to describe Epaphras' prayer ministry. That Epaphras struggles in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. Isn't that a beautiful picture of an energy? Of a committed intentional effort of prayer. And, and as I think about this description of Paul and of Epaphras, it makes me ask myself how does my life of prayer and of ministry for Christ's people hold up to this description and this pattern that Paul is giving us? Certainly, there is a time and a place to guard against burnout but there's also a time and a place to pour ourselves out for Christ's people, to pour ourselves out for our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the Lord, that, those that the Lord has called to himself, to wrestle in prayer for one another, not just to throw up a casual prayer here and there, but to wrestle in prayer, to teach, to warn, to serve, to evangelize, to give ourselves for each other's sake. And so, my prayer as we read this description of Paul's effort is that this week we would be encouraged towards this type of prayer and ministry for one another in the Lord. But of course, this kind of effort doesn't just happen. This kind of effort is the result of a particular goal that we believe is worth pouring our lives out in order achieve. And the same is true for Paul. So, having seen Paul's effort in verse 1, look down to verses 2 and 3 with me now, where we find Paul's aim, or what it is that Paul is struggling to do. We read here that Paul is engaged in this great struggle so that the hearts of Christ's people, the Colossians, the Laodiceans, those he's not met, their hearts might be encouraged Being knit together for two things, being knit together in love for one another and being knit together into or full for a full assurance of understanding for the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I want us to look at a few things in Paul's statement here. First, Paul writes that he is striving so that the Colossians' hearts may be encouraged Now, to translate this word encouraged is appropriate, it's right, it's good, but I don't think it's exactly the way we sometimes hear the word encouragement. When I hear the word encouragement, I think maybe someone cheering me along as I I run a race or maybe someone complimenting me on doing a good job or maybe someone smiling at me uh, or or saying something uh, encouraging when I'm feeling down. And while the Greek word can imply all of that, it is much more robust than that. The Greek word literally means to come alongside someone. If you can imagine someone coming alongside, bending their shoulder to join you in the struggle. To come alongside someone certainly could mean comforting. It certainly could mean to encourage or exhort them. But I think the word that's best here is to strengthen, that he desires to strengthen their hearts, to come alongside their hearts. In the context of this verse, when I read this word in Greek and think of their hearts being encouraged or strengthened, the story or picture that comes into my mind is from Exodus chapter 17 in Israel's battle against the Amalekites. Do you remember that story? Israel's battling against the Amalekites, and we are told that whenever Moses lifted up his hand in which he held the staff of God, Israel prevailed against their enemies but whenever Moses's hand drooped Israel was beaten back by their enemies and so here's Moses striving to hold up the staff and what do Aaron his brother and her do they come alongside him and lift up his arms and strengthen him so that he can hold high the staff of God And Israel is victorious. See, that's what this Greek word means. To come alongside, to lift up. It's to give strength for. And Paul's goal in his struggle and toils to come alongside the Colossians that their hearts might be strengthened or encouraged. Well, for what or in what? Well, Paul particularly says... He desires to strengthen them as they are knit together. That is, that they would be brought into a united strength together as God's people. This is not just individually he's talking about, but God's people as a whole. And the question is, how is Paul going to strengthen the Colossians? With what are they going to be strengthened? What is his effort towards? And he gives us two answers to the question. First, they will be strengthened together Being knit together in love. Now, love is Paul's primary word to describe the Christ like attitude and affection that God's people have for one another, the Christ like commitment that we have for one another in the family of God. It is the self sacrificing care for one another that mirrors the steadfast love of Christ Himself that he had for us, that led him to even give up his life for his people. Later in the book of Colossians, and we'll look at this in more detail uh, several weeks down the road, but in chapter 3, I think Paul gives us such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be knit together in love. If you have your Bibles and are open in the book of Colossians and you want to look over to chapter 3, verses uh, 12 to 14, you'll see there this This picture that Paul gives when he calls the Colossians to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then he says, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's this love, this commitment to one another in Christ which binds them together and binds these characteristics and attributes together in perfect harmony with one another as the family of God. Isn't it true that few things strengthen us more than being surrounded by others with whom we share the bonds of friendship, of sacrificial care for one another that's described by the love with which God's people are to have for each other. I don't know about you, but I can think of so many situations, scenarios in life when to come together with God's people And to have God's people challenge me, encourage me, comfort me, build each other up, to worship together alongside each other as God's people in this fellowship of love for one another that we have in the love of Christ, binding us together, it is so strengthening, it is so encouraging, it builds us up. That's why I think God's people are urged to forgive one another when sinned against, to reach out and welcome one another when someone is visiting or new or unknown, to help one another when we're in need, to bear with one another because we're to be bound together in love as God's people. That's one of the ways in which we are to be strengthened together as we are knit to one another in love. So that's the first object of Paul's struggle and toil is to see God's people strengthened, being knit together in love. And maybe as we read that and we reflect on that, it's an opportunity to check our hearts and check our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. An opportunity to ask ourselves, Are there people we need to forgive? Are there people where we need to set aside our comfort zones in order to reach out and welcome them, that they might feel part of our body here at Westminster? Are there people we need to comfort or encourage? Are there people we need to show greater patience towards or compassion towards? Would an observer look at us individually and look at us as a congregation and see a body of believers built up, strengthened in the Lord because we are knit together in love? It's an opportunity for us as we read this to ask these questions tonight. But then Paul gives a second answer to how the Colossians will be strengthened They will also be strengthened as they are knit together into, the Greek says, or for, or in order to reach, as the ESV says, all the riches of full assurance of understanding for the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul stacks up a lot of phrases here, but all of these phrases are getting that one thing, that we might be strengthened by a full assurance of knowing Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I don't want us to underestimate the significance of Paul's words. You notice that in verse, verses 2 and 3, he uses treasure language twice. The, full, the riches of full assurance and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's not just religious expression. Paul is, I think, trying to remind us or to persuade us here that this knowledge of Christ really is the source of inestimable blessing and reward. It is the greatest thing we could desire or receive, and it is the source of strength for us. Why is that the case? You know what it's like to have an absolute full assurance of something, to be completely confident without any shadow of a doubt. And every once in a while in our house, we might disagree about something in our family, some fact or what really happened or what's really true. And when that happens, uh, one person in our family might be so confident that they'll, they'll make some dramatic statement. One of my children might say something like, I'll bet all my money that this is true. They are so confident. And of course, I love it when they say things like that because I usually have a great opportunity uh, either to get some money or maybe just to bring some humility to the room. Uh, Or if it's me, I might say something like, I'll bet you extra dessert for a week that this is the case. And you know how we act when we have full and complete confidence in something. It impacts what we say and how we live full assurance is being so confident that something is true it grounds your actions your will and your approach to life of course when it comes to most of these facts in our family my kids can be wrong quite often and even every once in a while i'm wrong about them but paul paul is talking about being strengthened by a full assurance of god's steadfast love towards us in christ A complete confidence in the hope of glory that has been proven beyond any hint of a shadow of doubt by the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The full assurance of understanding God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, maybe some of you are reading this here and you're thinking, well, why didn't he just say Christ? Why does he use this term, God's mystery? Why does he talk about the knowledge of God's mystery? Well, put yourself back in the first century for a minute. Put yourself back in Paul's shoes as a Jewish man speaking to these Gentile audiences. And remember where we are. For 2,000 years, for generation after generation, God's people, Israel, had received a promise from God But they had been waiting and waiting to see how in the world God would bring it to pass. And how many times in the history of God's people did they look around them and think, I have no idea how in the world God could possibly bring about his promises given what I see right now. God had promised that he would act to redeem Israel from their sin and rebellion. That God would act to fulfill his promises of blessing, of land, of hope, of descendants as the stars of the sky, of security, of glory, of being a blessing to all the nations. All of these promises that he'd given to Abraham. And not only that, but God had said that His great act of salvation and redemption for His people would also bring hope to the Gentiles as well. And so through the generations, as Israel sinned and suffered and were exiled, and yes, they were brought back, but not with the glory that they had or seemed to be indicated by the Lord's promises The prophets and God's people long to know what is God up to? How are these promises going to come about? I think of the prophet Habakkuk. Maybe you remember the prophet Habakkuk looking around him and seeing the chaos and the destruction of God's people and then receiving word from the Lord that what he was going to do next was to bring Babylon upon them to bring even greater destruction. And Habakkuk cries out, and says, Lord, what are you doing? How are you going to fulfill your promises? And a says, I'm going to take my stand on the watchtower, and I'm going to wait, Lord, for you to give an answer, because how in the world could your promises come true? I think of how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, when he says that the prophets that God sent, inquired carefully and were searching to find out about the grace that would come in Christ and how God was going to complete these promises. And then he says that even, even the very angels themselves, Peter says in 1 Peter 1:12, even the angels longed to look into the matter and discern what God was up to and how in the world his promises were going to come out. And no one Guessed or could figure out that God had a plan to send his own son, and that in sending his own son, he had a plan to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles, but then also to save Israel. It was a mystery for years and generations as the Gentiles dwelt in darkness without hope of God in this world, in Israel waited, not knowing how God was going to act. But then this mystery, this mystery that was hidden and kept secret for ages and generations, Paul says, finally burst into the open with the birth of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God's plan was suddenly revealed. What was hidden, what was a mystery was now made plain. In Christ, God showed how he would save all Israel and bring in the fullness of the Gentiles to his kingdom. And their salvation would be achieved by nothing less than the Son of God Himself becoming man, dying in our place, rising from the dead, achieving forgiveness by His blood, and then pouring out His very Holy Spirit to dwell in us, that we might be made new creations in Him. And Paul says that He struggles and He strives and He toils with everything in Him. To proclaim this mystery, this plan of God for their salvation so that they might have a full assurance and a knowledge of this mystery that would strengthen them for what could possibly shake the confidence of such a salvation brought by the Son of God himself. See, This is the strength that Paul is striving for. And then he adds that it's, it's not only the full assurance we have in Christ that strengthens us, but it's also the fact that in Christ, who is the mystery of God, we receive all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, what, is, what does that mean? In what sense are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ? Well, if you've been with us in our series in Proverbs in the Mornings, Remember how we've defined wisdom. Remember what we've said that wisdom and knowledge and understanding summarize our ability to live life well as God intended it to be lived. It summarizes our understanding of life and our understanding of the Lord and the fear of the Lord that leads us to live rightly before the Lord in ways that lead to blessing and hope and life. In Deuteronomy, the Lord had repeatedly summoned Israel to know him, to love him, and to keep his commandments and statutes, for they would lead you in wisdom, and they would enable you to live righteously and well as God intended you to live, that you might have life in the land. And yet Israel failed to do this. They rejected God's commands. They did not achieve that life. But if we fast forward to Isaiah chapter 11, Which I think is one of the keys to understanding this promise of wisdom in Christ. The Lord promised in Isaiah 11 verse verse 1, beginning in verse 1, that a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse. A descendant would come from Jesse. And what we read there in Isaiah 11 is that this shoot, this descendant of Jesse, would bring about life and blessing and knowledge of the Lord that would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And how would he bring about this life and this blessing and this knowledge of the Lord? Well, he, the reason he would be able to bring such blessing is that he would be full of the Spirit of the Lord. And Isaiah calls the Holy Spirit here the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when we turn to the New Testament, What we find is that when Christ rises from the dead, He pours out this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the Spirit of God Himself. He pours out that Holy Spirit on His people. Now we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord. And Paul in, in his letters to the Corinthians spells this out saying that Christ becomes for us the wisdom of God because the spirit himself searches the deep things of God and that spirit who searches the deep things of God is now dwelling in us so that we can understand his word and know him. And, and in 2 Corinthians 3, We find out that in Christ we have received the Spirit who is transforming us into the image of the Lord and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness from one degree of glory to the next, Paul says. And he says all of this comes from the Spirit of the Lord. So in Christ, as we receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord poured out on us so that we are being transformed into His image more and more, we receive these treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we might live life well before the Lord, in the Lord, knowing the Lord, and find life and blessing in Him. And what could possibly be a greater treasure or source of strength than the indwelling of the Spirit of God in us? Here's what I want to emphasize. Paul says we're strengthened by this full assurance of the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ and all the treasures we have in Him. But I want you to understand that this is not merely abstract or theological. We don't just follow this along and say, okay, I'm going to trace all these jumping from Deuteronomy to Isaiah to Corinthians and follow the theological train and then maybe that'll... No, this is practical. This is God meeting us right where we are. Last weekend, a a number of us attended a conference that we hosted here at Westminster, a conference for pastors and, and elders focused on being a healthy biblical church. And the conference speakers talked about a number of these truths, about the Spirit supplying the power for the church to accomplish its mission, about Jesus' promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age about His plan and His calling to the church to be His witness in the world. His promise that if we pray, He will act, and that our prayers are His desired means of accomplishing these things. And it wasn't until we began to go through these sessions, and the thing that tied all of these sessions together was holding up the glory of the risen Christ— And the power that we have as the spirit of the risen Christ is with us, it wasn't until we started to go through these that, to be honest, I realized how weary I was. And I found myself strengthened and renewed, not by a weekend of more naps or watching football on Saturday and Sunday, but strengthened and renewed by hearing and believing and tasting the glory of the risen Christ and his love for his church. I wonder, I wonder if there's any of you here this evening who might also know this weariness. The sort of going through the motions sort of weariness. Or maybe it's not weariness exactly. Maybe it's the anxiety, the unsettled worry about life. Maybe it's whether the particulars of your life are, that are uncertain are going to work out. Maybe it's griefs that fill your life. Maybe it's conflict in your family. Maybe it's looking around at our culture and seeing the weight of the oppression against biblical truth. Maybe it's waking up and seeing one of the worst terrorist attacks in recent memory on the people of Israel. And as we face this weariness and the, the grief and the exhaustion, we say, where do I find strength? If you know this weariness or this worry, would you consider the full assurance, the complete confidence without a shadow of a doubt that comes through knowing God's work in Christ, the mystery that he has revealed in his Son, the presence of Christ with you by his Holy Spirit, that we might know the Lord and his ways. That is the solid rock we stand on, on which our house will not be wiped out by any strength of floods or rains or winds beating against it. Would you taste the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that come in Jesus Christ? This is where we find real strength, will, real joy, real hope offered in the Son of God. See, this is what we have in Christ. So Paul has struggled and strived With the aim of strengthening the Colossians in love and in the full assurance of the knowledge of Christ and the riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That's Paul's aim. But I want us to lastly look for one final minute at verses 4 and 5, because here is Paul's ultimate desire. We've seen his effort, we've seen the aim of his effort. But toward what goal, what ultimate desire? And he writes it in verses 4 and 5. He says, I say this in order that... That's language to say, this is my purpose. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And then in verse 5, he says that his joy is to see the good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Now, we're going to continue to hear throughout Colossians 2 that there are false teachers who have come into the church in Colossae and are threatening to dissuade the faith of the Colossian believers. And Paul's greatest desire is that these believers would not be deluded or swayed or pulled by these false teachers and their plausible arguments, but instead that they would stand firm in their faith, mature in Christ. And so how does, how does Paul go about holding the Colossians fast in Christ? By holding up Christ in all his glory. That was the whole point of chapter one. That's the whole point of strengthening them in the knowledge of Christ. That is the means by which this happens. I'll close with this. A couple of weeks ago, as you know, we were on vacation in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. We had a beautiful day, our first day, a somewhat decent day the second day and then the third day a tropical storm hit and so here we are a block off the beach in this tall beach house on the you know the, the the stilts or whatever they put into the the sand here with these 50 60 mile an hour straight winds beating against us in the rain it was a little bit worrying but we were fine in fact the year before we were there in a tropical storm too and we were fine so i had a pretty good confidence that we were going to make it. But here's the point. My security was not in my ability to try to beat back the winds or make the storm stop. The storm was going to blow. My security was in the firmness of the house. And in a similar way, what I want to encourage us is that we will never keep the world, the flesh, and the devil from fighting against God's people. We will never fix the culture or make sure that none of us are tempted to sin or make politics make sense or anything like that. But that's not where our hope is. Our hope and our strength isn't stopping all that. It is in the firmness of the house in which we stand. And that house is Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is doing. Spending his time lifting high the glory of Christ so that we might be strengthened with a full assurance of the knowledge of Christ and love with one another, that we might stand firm in our faith, mature in his son. And so this week, may we pray toward that end and stand in him. That is my prayer for us. Let's close by going to our God in prayer tonight. Oh Lord, how we thank you for your word. I thank you for your word, which is true. This is no sophistry which just holds out some good-sounding arguments to make us feel better. No, this is truth of what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. O Lord, would you use your word to strengthen us as we are knit together in love for one another into the full assurance of the truth of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.